Some white people insist there is no systemic racism. Well, what about gentrification? That's not an accident. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. It was called progress. When I was growing up in Boston, older working class, usually minority neighborhoods, had to make way for progress. Out with the old, in with the new, is how the story went. Urban renewal. Oh, it sounded so promising. Now, some 60 years later, we still experience the socioeconomic effects of gentrification as we as a society have less and less space for working class people, which hurts our economy. They've been steadily pushed out with little, if any, regard for where they went. But boy, some gorgeous new apartments sure made our cities more attractive and economically strong, at least in the top sector. The same pattern has been in work in cities across America. In Washington, D.C., the dynamic most dramatically absolutely affected people of color. In her new book, Before Gentrification, the Creation of D.C.'s Racial Wealth Gap, author Tanya Golash-Bozat shows how a century of redlining, disinvestment, and the war on drugs wrecked devastation on Washington, D.C.'s black community, paving the way for gentrification. Golash-Bozat tracks the cycles of state abandonment and collective punishment that have shaped the city, revealing how policies and policing have worked and continue to work to displace and decimate the black middle class. Through the stories of those who've lost their homes and livelihoods, Golash Boza explores how DC came to be the nation's incarceration and murder capital and why it is now a haven for wealthy white people. Perhaps the simplest way to clean up the neighborhood was to sweep the streets, turn to prisons and enhanced policing to solve problems faced by black communities in the 20th century Instead of investing in schools, community centers, social services, health care, and effective intervention for violence protection, uh, prevention, rather, wouldn't it be a better 21st century had we done that? But it's not too late. Our guest is Tanya Golash-Boza. Thanks so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you, Bert. It's great to be here. Tanya Golash-Boza is the executive director of the University of California, Washington Center and a professor of sociology at the University of California. She is author of five previous books that engage around issues of racism, immigration policy, and human rights. No, nothing right about there, huh? Uh, tell us, please, the yeah. genesis of this book. How did it come to be written, and who is the audience you would like to reach? So I, I, I wrote this book in large part based on um, my own experiences. So the genesis for this, for this book, um, unlike some of my other books, was, was my own personal experiences. So when I um, went to college in the mid-1990s, um, one of my close friend's brother went to prison. And I've often thought about how you know, the rich and full life that I've had for the past 30 years versus the life that he's had um, mm. behind bars. So just sort of thinking about, um, and then also thinking about what would ha- what's going to happen when he comes home, because um, I knew that he would come home eventually, and he did come home after 23 years. So just imagining how how he would reintegrate into a city 
that's changed so much. Yeah, it has changed a lot, no question about it. And I don't know if um, before uh, gentrification, were black people the majority of uh, D.C. or just a large percentage? I, I really don't know. Yeah, they were absolutely the majority. So what happened mm. is um, and that once slavery was abolished and we had emancipation, you begin to see we had the Great Migration. So you begin to right. see waves of African-Americans moving to cities. Um, so many. So D.C. had been majority white, but through the process of the Great Migration, it slowly began to see more and more African-Americans arriving in the city. Around 1950, it was about half black and half white. But by 1970, D.C. was 70% African-American. Uh-huh. And as as you say, this story is not an abstraction. You've experienced the process quite directly. Tell us about your old neighborhood and what transpired, please. Yeah, so I, le- I learned a lot about my old neighborhood, things that I had sort of heard about growing up, but I didn't know. So the neighborhood where I grew up is called Petworth, and in the 1930s, it had been most, mostly a field, you know, mostly, um, uh-huh. mostly rural area, and it was developed. Um, but when the houses were, when developers first built the houses in the na- that neighborhood, they specified that those homes would only be sold to white people. So mm. the so mm. most of the homes were sold between about 1930 and 1940, and all of the home buyers were white because you could not you had to be white to purchase those homes. So it's it's basically a neighborhood of brick row houses with tree lined streets with parks and schools, and it was designed um, for white residents who wanted to live just outside the central city, it's still within the district line, but it's on the northern side of the city. But, and so the, the way the developers were able to make those homes only available to whites is they had right. these things called racially restrictive covenants in the deed. Mm. But in 1948, those restrictive covenants were deemed unenforceable. So at, as of 1948, black people could purchase homes in that neighborhood. And you see a couple of black people purchasing homes in 1948, 1949, but white people were not leaving en masse just yet. It actually took school desegregation, which happened in 1954. So at the mm-hmm. beginning of the 1954 school year, the schools were now open to white and black residents, schools that had previously been only available to white residents. And there's one block in my neighborhood that I looked at, I took a close look at. In 1954, 75% of the homeowners were white. Two years later, 75% of the homeowners were black. So... So white people left the neighborhood en masse, you know, rather than send their kids to integrated school. They preferred mm. to sell their homes and to move out to the suburbs. The suburbs were not quite as liberal, and they weren't really allowing black people to purchase homes there. But black people were able to purchase homes in the city. So African-Americans began to purchase homes in that neighborhood. And that neighborhood went from 100% white in 1950 to almost 90% white, by 90% black by 1970. Mm. And, and you talked about how a 1948 law uh, was overturned, but there was still something called redlining, and not everybody is familiar mm-hmm. with the term redlining. Uh, it's something that I believe banks uh, do with a wink and a nod. What is redlining, and how did that, how did that affect black people's ability to participate in upward mobility? T- tell us about that, please. Of course. So redlining comes from the, uh, this term specifically where um, the Homeowners Loan Corporation, which is a government agency, uh-huh. created maps of most cities, and they would mark in red 
neighborhoods that they said, oh, we're not underwriting loans in that area. We're not going to help the banks help people buy homes in those neighborhoods. So, mm. And every single one of those neighborhoods where they said they wouldn't help people buy the homes, they wouldn't underwrite the loans, were majority black. So when those maps were created in the 1930s, Petworth, the neighborhood that I grew up in, was actually green-lined. It was actually colored in green because um, it was all white mm. and it was working, working to middle class. So it wasn't officially redlined when it was, because it was majority white. Um, so then um, when black people began to purchase, so black people were able to purchase homes in that area. So there is, there's, I think there's, there's a lot of nuance here in what's going on. Black people were not able to purchase homes in the white suburbs, but they were able to purchase homes in the city. And they were actually getting loans from regular banks and, and other savings and loans. And they were able to get VA loans in the city. And they were able to purchase a lot of homes. But... Um, that neighborhood did eventually become redlined. So once the neighborhood became nearly all black, then it became difficult to get a big, a big loan. Mm. And 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 you you assert that real estate agents and the federal government worked together first to keep neighborhoods like Eckington and Petworth white, uh, and, and then. Uh, to encourage white flight to the suburbs. How did that work? The federal government working together with real estate agents. It doesn't sound kosher. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it was a different time back then, but it's not completely different from what we see today. But yeah. the, the laws were not as, as strong back then in terms of real estate protection. So the way the real estate works is basically a home sale is money for a real estate agent, right? Sure. If they sell a home, they're going to get a commission. So Lots of home sales means lots of money for real estate agents. So during this era of white flight, um, so first of all, tons of homes are being sold in the, in the primarily white suburbs. So realtors are telling white people in the neighborhoods, hey, you know, there's these great homes for sale out in, um, you know, out of Bethesda, out in Silver Spring. Those areas are all white. Your kids uh, go to all white schools. You can have a nice big lawn. You can, I'll help you sell your home here and I'll help you buy a home in Bethesda. So the real estate agent is going to make money just because that's, uh, you know, he's going he's to get sure. a commission. So, but in addition to that, they were not just real estate agents. They were also what back then was called speculators. So the real estate agents were actually buying the homes from the white people that were leaving and then reselling them to the uh -huh. black people. So they were making a, an additional, you know, additional amount of money off of the home sale. And there was, um, on Kennedy Street, which is literally right around the corner from where I grew up, it was actually called Speculators Row. There was a row of offices of speculators who um, who set up shop there, and the primary thing that they did was go into neighborhoods that were white in the 1940s and convince them to buy homes in the suburbs, buy up the homes themselves, uh -huh. and then resell them to black people. And what was the federal government's role? They should be neutral in all this. They weren't uh, you know, making any commission. Right, so the federal government was building, um, was was subsidizing the building of the suburbs, ah, was building huh. highways out into the suburbs. Oh, right. Uh, was 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 subsidizing the building of schools in the suburbs, and also was moving. It, it began not this didn't happen immediately, but the federal government began to eventually move many of its operations out to the suburbs where the white people were living. And there's the housing issue, which is pretty substantial. What happened to the jobs? in those neighborhoods. That's a really substantial issue that I, I don't think everybody, you know, thinks about. And it's uh, it's a big, big issue, the jobs that used to be there, used to be accessible. Yeah. And I think the, the, the part of the story we want to make sure that we understand really clearly is that 
when when the neighbor that I grew up in Petworth, when it became majority black in the 1950s or towards the 1960s, it continued to be a black middle class neighborhood. Uh, Unemployment was less than two percent. Wow. Right, it was a, it was a prosperous neighborhood because these are black homeowners, people coming in to purchase homes, and and the schools were good. Um, so it was only over the course of decades, so that by the 1970s, the schools are no longer receiving the investments that, that they received. You begin to see a, an uptick in unemployment in the 1970s, as you see, mm. begin to see the exodus of, of the federal jobs to the suburbs, the um, the exodus of some of the this emerging tech industry out to the suburbs, but really not into the 1980s. So in the 1980s was a time when um, manufacturing in the U.S. began to say, hey, you know, these mm-hmm. workers are demanding unions, they're demanding high wages, right. we're just going to send our production to Mexico, to China, et cetera. Right. So that's all going on in this kind of era of globalization in the 1980s. That causes an exodus of jobs, both out of the suburbs, but also just abroad, right? Jobs that can be done abroad begin to be done abroad. And that's when we begin to see a, a, um, a, a peak in unemployment in cities across the United States. I mean, Detroit was probably one of the hardest hit. Um, D.C. wasn't hit as hard as Detroit, but definitely we see increases in unemployment going from, you know, less than 2 percent up to 8 or 9 percent in the central city. Wow, that's that's really obviously huge. And I wonder in what ways was and is gentrification, do you think, part of a bigger picture of what's been called racial capitalism? Talk about that, please. Yeah, absolutely. So... Well, we want to think about what gentrification is. Gentrification simply means that upper-income people, the gentry, move into a neighborhood that has been disinvested. So they move into a neighborhood where the housing prices are low and where the rents are low. And then, and as they move in, then the rents go up and the housing prices go up. But gentrification can only happen with disinvestment. Disinvestment is a precondition for gentrification. So when we look at a neighborhood like Petworth, if it had never been disinvested, right, if it didn't experience this decline in public and private investments in the neighborhood, it wouldn't be gentrifiable. But all this is fundamentally tied to capitalism, right, which is, or to racial capitalism, which uh-huh. is, is, a, is just a concept that in, in, in racial capitalism or in capitalism period, um, investments are made based on profit potential. Yes. So um, in racial capitalism, that profit is racialized. Right, so a neighborhood mm-hmm. that is 100% black, the housing prices are going to be lower. Like if you take into account all the aspects of the neighborhood, and you compare it to a, an ex- identical neighborhood that is 100% white, the housing prices are going to be higher in the white neighborhood because housing prices in the United States are highly racialized. So once a neighborhood becomes majority black, basically what happens is the market. Um, white people are not. Most white people are not willing to move into a neighborhood that's 100% black. So therefore the price goes down. And that's basic capitalism, right? So the cap- I call it racial capitalism because there's capitalism where people are willing to um, make purchases based on a, p- a potential perceived profit, but that, but race always plays a role in the profit potential that people see, right, that they imagine. Oh, yeah. And I'll tell you, one thing that's long bugged me is how you know, it, 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 freezing black people out of being able to buy real estate. Think about how, you know, people, non-black people flip houses. They make 
it's, it's, it's a tradition. It doesn't always work, mm-hmm. but often does. When they sell their house, they make some money, and then they can continue that upward mobility. But if, if people are frozen out of that, they're frozen out of that, what we believe to be, you know, the American way of upward mobility. And uh, it doesn't fit the image that a lot of people want to create, but it's reality. And it's, uh, it's, it's not, exactly true. It's not a pretty reality. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And our guest today is Tanya Golash-Boza, who's written a new book called Before Gentrification, the Creation of D.C.'s uh, Racial Wealth Gap. How did your town, the District of Columbia, become known as the nation's incarceration and murder capital? What could we have done in the 20th yeah. century that might have done something about that? Yeah, so what happened is, um, as I was explaining earlier, in the 1980s, we began to see rise in unemployment. Um, so we have these we have neighborhood, and we also see a disinvestment in public schooling. Yeah. So schools that had really been excellent in the 1960s and 1970s are no longer receiving the same appropriations, or maybe now they're receiving the same amount of money, but they have more students. So we see very low rates of college attendance. We even Ah. see very low rates of high school graduation. So basically the neighborhood is becoming Mm. disinvested. Um, There's a lot of, um, there's a, then that leads to a rise in crime. Um, And then what happens critically during this moment of high unemployment, high crime, failing schools, crack cocaine appears on the scene. Ah. So in the mid 1980s, crack cocaine becomes available. And what crack cocaine does, first of all, it's a substance that makes you feel good the first time you take it. So people mm-hmm. that are unemployed or having a hard time um, or having, you know, experiencing trauma in their lives, you know, sure. they turn to illegal drugs, right, instead of they probably can't afford a therapist. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so, so crack is, you know, a solve for their, um, for their troubles. But crack also creates tremendous income-earning opportunities in the city, Um so young boys, you know, as young as 14 years old are literally able to make a hundred, 200, 500, a thousand dollars a day selling crack. So the boys in the, in, in it, so even boys in, in, um, that come from stable homes where everyone has food on the table, where, um, the parents are working, you know, they, they go to school. School is not very engaging because, you know, again, the schools are just invested facing crises. Teachers yeah. are not showing up. So they're not finding a lot of engagement at school. But then, you know, you tell a 14-year-old kid, hey, you can make, you know, a couple hundred dollars if you just, like, take this, take these rocks and resell them, you know, at a profit. Mm. So we began to see just the pro- pro- proliferation of crack selling in the city. So crack filled a void both in terms of um, the trauma and the problems we were facing, but then also in terms of the, the high rates of unemployment, particularly really high rates of youth unemployment in the city. But crack also created a moral panic. Um, across the nation, and the ah, true. You know, even though, if, yeah, if we look at crack, we can see that um, crack kind of came in at this time where, when a crisis was impending, and we could have invested in the city, and then we could have said, you know what, let's rebuild those community centers, let's start more youth programs, let's let's invest in the schools. Mm. But we didn't. The city did not do that. But when crack came, everybody was like, oh no, now we need more police. Now we need mm-hmm. to build more prisons. Now we need we need the the primary solution offered to the crack epidemic was carceral. Mm. So that created a scenario where uh, the violence was, the underlying problems weren't being addressed, so they just continued to increase. The only, thing that was, and the only solution offered was carceral. So that created a scenario where 
1991, Washington, D.C. had the highest murder rate in the country. Second to that was um, Detroit. And then by 1994, Washington, D.C. had the highest incarceration rate, not just in the country, but in the whole world. So just a tremendously high rate of incarceration. And just to put this into context, by 1997, 50% of black male youth in D.C. were caught in the carceral system, meaning they were either out on a out on a warrant, they had a warrant out for their arrest, mm-hmm. they were on bail, they were on probation, on parole, or physically behind bars. Mm. 50%. Absolutely mm-hmm. a- a- amazing. And, uh, you know, it's not just D.C., but a lot of cities where there's where there's drugs and homeless people, the easiest thing to do and what the police unions are all for is just, oh, sweep the street, just throw them in jail. Mm-hmm. You don't, I mean, the real solution is not that. The real solution is, as you say, you know, schools and, and being, you know, addressing the reasons people are so desperate, you know, and, and hopeless, but they don't do that. And the specter of crack cocaine as I certainly remember, made for very dramatic TV news coverage. It was great, you know, as they say, eye candy. It caught the attention of a lot of people, and this is scary. So, you know, that's what makes the news. It attracted and kept attention of viewers. But rather than being a cause of the frightening rise in crime, violence, and policing that followed, you suggest it was a catalyst. What what, what do you mean by that? In terms of crack was a catalyst for the rise of policing. Yeah. Yeah. So when when crack came, crack didn't cause all of the problems in the city, right? Crack arrived at a propitious, uh, at an appropriate time, right, for it to flourish. So if Mm. if crack had arrived in the city, you know, crack is basically cocaine mixed with baking powder that gives you an immediate high. If it arrived in a city where everybody was happy and, and employed mm. and schools were thriving and kids were thriving, you know, there's always going to be people that do drugs. Like that's you know, every human oh. society. You go back to antiquity. People, people like mind-altering substances. That's fine. It's fact. Drug use only becomes a problem when, when it creates addiction, um, when people are criminalized. So when crack arrives into the city, it arrives at a time when a lot of people were looking for, you know, a solve for their problems. So it became the, and it was a new drug. It gave you a very quick high. So kind of all the conditions were right for crack cocaine to kind of burst on the scene and become available. And then because it was illegal and it continues to be illegal, the sale of crack cocaine oh, yeah. wasn't happening at the at the local pharmacy, right? It was happening in the street. So that yeah. set and then and, and it was it was actually incredibly profitable um for people to sell crack cocaine just because of the way, you know, the crack market works. It's something you can you can sell a five dollar rock or a ten dollar rock or a twenty dollar rock. So people were just selling large quantities of crack cocaine because it was highly desirable at the time, it was high sales. So um so that created this opportunity for um drug organiza- drug selling organizations to um to be created and they made a lot of money and then of course and that that led to violence uh-huh, between sure. them because the market was illegal. You know, if you if you have the possibility of literally making, you know, this some organizations were making hundreds of thousands of dollars, so they're going to fight for their their territory uh-huh. to sell the drug, right? Because it's all on this illegal market. So the only way that they can control their territory in an illegal market is through violence. Through violence, yes, we saw that in prohibition against alcohol in the twenties. Yeah, that worked mm-hmm. so well mm-hmm. as well. Right. And before you wrote this book, I believe you 
originally intended to explore how the massive displacement of, of black men from D.C. to carceral facilities had shaped the trajectory of the city. Why did you decide to broaden the scope of your research to write the book you have? So, so the primary basis of the research is interviews with um, black men from Washington, D.C. who had been incarcerated. Ah. So as I'm talking to them about their experiences, asking them you know, how they ended up behind bars and and, and and why they decided to sell crack cocaine. Um, and I and I wanted to specifically interview people from different neighborhoods in the city, neighborhoods that had been gentrified, neighborhoods that hadn't been gentrified. But as I'm talking to them, and I'm talking to them about where they grew up and what their life life was like growing up, I'm finding that a lot of them grew up in relatively middle-class homes. And one thing that really stood out was that um, a lot of, like 35 of the 37 um, black men that I interviewed grew up in families that had a history of home ownership. So I had just not really thought about that, about the fact that, you know, their grandparents had come up to Washington, D.C. during the Great Migration and had succeeded. You know, they had actually come all the way here, made it in the pre-civil rights era, figured out a way to save enough money to purchase a home in these neighborhoods experiencing white flight. And I just imagine when they got to those neighborhoods, they look like nice neighborhoods with, with rows of brick homes, with tree-lined streets, with good schools. And they must have felt like they had achieved, you know, some version of the American dream. And just sort of reflecting on how their children and grandchildren didn't experience the benefits of this nice middle-class neighborhood and how, it's just kind of how devastating that is that, um, you know, just imagine, you know, you think you're setting yourself up by buying this nice brick home, right. this nice neighborhood, sure. and then your your grandchildren is behind bars. And like, I'm like, how did that happen? Mm. Mm. Well, most states have their own prison systems, but D.C. is a unique uh, uh, sovereignty uh, entity, unique political entity. The, following up on the continuing tragedy of the mass incarceration, D.C. doesn't have its own prison system. What impact does that have on the lives of inmates and their families? Yeah, we can see that really clearly because D.C. did have its own prison system oh, wow. until 1997 huh. when um, Congress um, obliged D.C. to redo its finances and then suggested that we that we close down our own prison and move everyone to federal facilities. So when... When D.C. had its own prison, it was called Lorton. It was in Lorton, Virginia, um, not too far from the city. And there were every, you know, I used to work downtown, and just a couple blocks from where I worked, I would go to take the bus on 12th and F Street, and there would be a line of mostly black um, women and children waiting in line to get on this bus that would take them to Lorton. So when when um, Lorton was, when people were incarcerated in Lorton, which was close by, their family could go visit them. Um, these men could see their children and kind of maintain ties to the community. Um, they could take classes. I believe Georgetown offered classes at Lorton. So there were ties to local community organizations that made it easier on the families that were here that were missing their loved ones and also made it easy, easier on the loved ones who were incarcerated when they returned because there were these programs that were set up kind of for their, to facilitate their reentry into society. But when Lorton officially closed down in 2001, now, every single person who's convicted of a D.C. code offense or a federal code offense in the, inside the district line is sent to a federal facility. Now, they are ostensibly not supposed to be sent more than 500 miles away, uh -huh, right. and even that's far. 
but they actually are dispersed all over the country. Um, I teach at the University of California, Merced, and there's a facility um, about 20 miles from where I, where I work. And there are about at least 40 um, people from Washington, D.C. in that facility. So if you're in D.C. and you want to go visit your brother or your father or your child in Atwater, it's, it's really not easy to get there. you got to take a plane to Fresno, mm. and you have to rent a car. I mean, there's really no other way to get there. So if you don't have a driver's license, you're already out. You can't go, right? So you got to take a car to, um, to Atwater, stay in a hotel, you know, and then, so it's just, it's going to run you $1,500, not to mention time off work because you have to go, you know, during the specific time the prison's going to allow, allow you during visiting hours. So having the people incarcerated so far away puts a significant financial burden on families. Um, and it also makes reintegration difficult because, Although there are many agencies in D.C. that are interested in formerly incarcerated people, because we have so many. So D.C. has 700,000 residents, but we have 60,000 formerly incarcerated people in the city. So there's a lot of focus on trying to help them reintegrate, but the city can't realistically create a program in every single one of the you know, yeah. dozens of federal facilities around the country. And, and if, I, if I'm hearing this right, it seems like that problem that you were just uh, describing so thoroughly uh, has its root back into the uh, creation of uh, D.C.'s racial wealth gap, the uh, what happened before gentrification, which is the name of the book, Before Gentrification, the Creation of D.C.'s Racial Wealth Gap. And uh, we're speaking with its author, Tanya Golash-Boza, rather, on uh, keeping democracy alive. And you, know, you can't really have... What kind of democracy can it be if a whole bunch of people are specifically and intentionally left out of the system and cannot participate in this glorious capitalism. Uh, you, you say that intergenerational poverty, it's a myth. It's a myth. What, what is, tell us about that. Please explain how intergenerational poverty is a myth. Okay, so intergenerational poverty definitely exists. But what we're seeing with D.C.'s black community is a lot of intergenerational downward mobility. Yeah. So by that I mean you have people in the 1950s who are purchasing homes. Now, when you, when, you're, when you purchase a home in the United States, that's one of the core definitions of middle-class status, right? right. So you have achieved the capital to purchase homes. And normally when you, and so the, the myth that we have in the United States is that, you know, if your grandparents were able to benefit from the New Deal and all of the um, federal government programs that allow people to buy homes in the 1950s, that your family should therefore have um, intergenerational wealth. So like my grandparents or on my father's side bought a home outside of Albany, New York um, in the 1950s, and that home became the basis for, um, for, for my father's side of the family's intergenerational wealth, right? So they, um, my father went to college, all of his siblings went to college, you know, they've all, they've all done well. So that uh-huh. home purchase and that sort of growing up in that middle-class white neighborhood outside of New York City in the suburbs set the stage for my father's family to prosper across generations. You know, all my cousins are doing well. You know, it's basically um, set everyone up. But a black family who purchased a home in D.C. at that same time oftentimes does not experience that intergenerational wealth. And one of the really key, there's two key reasons for that. One is the, um, the disinvestment that those neighborhoods experience and kind of concomitant with that is the fact that those homes in black neighborhoods, once they became nearly all black, they did not increase in value. Mm. So between 1950 and 2000, those homes only increased in value at the rate of inflation. So that investment 
didn't translate into intergenerational wealth because it didn't really pan out. If you had taken that $20,000 and put it in the stock market, mm. instead of putting it into a home in a black neighborhood, you'd have far more money. That's not how it's supposed to work. Not how it's supposed right. to happen. Uh, a lot of supposed to's out there, but it doesn't quite work that way. And as I was preparing for, for this discussion today, I was reminded in the late 70s, I worked for a company in Boston that sold what were called real estate tax shelters. Uh, and these were to mm. wealthy investors. After not very long, I realized that, you know, what I was selling was uh, what, it, a piece of Section 8s and 221 D4s public housing that provided no sense of ownership for the residents. It, it 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 made me really uncomfortable. It made me really uncomfortable, and I I think I was right in feeling uncomfortable. This public <laughs> housing, and we've seen these public housing, and you know, and what happens to that? What what did that kind of stuff? Those section eights and and the big high rises and stuff like that. These concrete, you know, uh, Stalinist kind of architecture do to neighborhoods and a sense of community. Right. So I think what's interesting about public housing is that when public, public housing was first built in Washington, D.C. and around the country, you know, in the 1940s and 1950s, there were some of those high rises that you talk about. Those actually came a little bit later in the 1970s. But at first, there were, in D.C. anyway, there's a lot of garden apartments with four bedrooms, five bedrooms for large families. There's mm -hmm. these grassy walkways that go between them. And they were nice. There's actually um, newspaper articles in the 1950s about how um, these public housing um, projects for for they were segregated. They were for black people, but how they were so well kept and how um, they were the pride of the city. So there was there was actually a lot of pride in public housing when it was first created. Cause, and and mm -hmm. public housing is a great idea. You know, it's basically saying we have workers in the city, and they're not able to afford to live in the city. So let's help them out with housing. So that it, it was sort of seen as a start. Let's help these young homeowners. Uh -huh. um, and, sorry, these young workers. Um, live in these houses and kind of get a start. And once they make a little bit more money, they can move on to, you know, purchase their home, own home or, or rent in a different part of the city. So public housing was actually a pretty nice place to live um, in most cases until the 1970s. So uh. what happened in the 1970s is um, Richard Nixon under the Nixon administration basically decided we're going to stop putting money into public housing. Like we're not going to close it down. But what we're going to do is they're going to have to be self-sustaining. So all the rent that they collect, that will be the money that they use to um, rehabilitate. And then also we're going to change the income requirements so that you have to be really poor to live there. And the way that it works with public housing is you pay a certain percentage of your income. So now that you have a public housing set up with very little revenue um, and not enough revenue really to maintain it. So over the course of the 1970s, the projects begin to become dilapidated, uh -huh. you know, not that nice places to live anymore because basically they're not, you know, they're not keeping them up um, as they once had. And then, you know, the problems just get worse in the 1980s as you have um, very high rates of joblessness in the housing project. So, so housing projects were initially created as kind of as a nice thing, mm -hmm. but just this years of disinvestment. And then in addition to that, you also have redlining in those neighborhoods, which means that those neighborhoods were kind of declared, the neighborhoods where public housing was, were declared as not suitable for for investment. So then, you, mm -hmm. when there there were grocery stores in those neighborhoods, 
But when those closed down for whatever reason, um, people would have trouble getting a bank loan to open a new one. So the neighborhood, yeah. so over the years, the grocery stores closed, the delis closed, and eventually you have a neighborhood that basically just has public housing, liquor stores, corner stores, nightclubs, you know, car washes, auto garages, right? Not a lot of things that make a neighborhood um, pleasant, mm. a pleasant place to live. And that creates a scenario where you do see um, a significant rise in violence. Um, in those neighborhoods by the nineteen, by the mid to late nineteen eighties, early nineteen nineties. Well, that's an important uh, story that is not well known. What happened to these public housing? And I mean, nowadays, you know, the the problem of homelessness. Well, cities, you know, municipalities don't really have the funds available to build new housing, but the federal government does. And really, mm-hmm. in my opinion damn well ought to do something about it. But are they doing anything about it? No. And I believe, yes, it's a good idea. And I am a big fan of Franklin Roosevelt in general. He had some issues. I wish he had supported the uh, Republic of Spain against the fascists, but he didn't do that. And that encouraged (laughs) Hitler and Mussolini. But that's another story. But the the problems, I mean, the, the programs and projects that FDR put into gear were not integrated. They were not integrated. The housing was not integrated. How did federal housing authority, FHA policies, actually come to define redlining and transform previously integrated working class neighborhoods into sites of concentrated poverty and racial isolation? And what did the FHA contribute? How did they contribute to the uh, problem, the deterioration? Right, so you have neighborhoods like, um, there's a neighborhood called the Navy Yard in Washington, D.C. It's named after the Navy Yard, which is right there. Uh-huh. So in the early 20th century, black and white workers worked side by side in the Navy Yard. And then they built themselves little little wooden homes in the neighborhood. So you had an integrated neighborhood of black workers living alongside white workers in, different, in, in their own small homes, a lot of which they had built themselves. So in the 1930s, um, the federal government comes along and says, you know, this neighborhood is blighted. We need to destroy all of these homes mm. um, and, and push all these people out because, you know, this is a slum and we can't have a slum in the mm-hmm. nation's capital. You know, this is literally a few blocks away from the from the capital. So they um, clear out all the homes and then they build public housing in its place. And like I said, at first, you know, the public housing was fine and it was nice, but when they when they built that public housing there and when they declared that neighborhood a slum, that's the, the, the federal housing authority officially redlined that neighborhood, basically said, we're not going to underwrite private investment in this neighborhood. So we're going to build the public housing, but if someone wants to, if a bank comes to us and wants to a loan underwritten in this neighborhood, it won't be, it won't qualify for an FHA um, subsidized loan because it's not, we don't think that this neighborhood is going to increase in value. Of course, that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy yeah. because if they, if they don't invest it, it doesn't increase in value. So that, so that, so Navy Yard, um, like I said, when it first opened, it was fine. There was a grocery store there that it mm. didn't close down until 1979. But once that grocery store closed down, that was it. You know, there were no other grocery stores coming into the neighborhood. So over time, that neighborhood went from this thriving, integrated neighborhood with small businesses and and shops to basically only having public housing. And, uh, and and these sort of dilapidated businesses that weren't really serving the needs of the community because of redlining, right? Because you couldn't get a, 
a loan to build, you know, nice housing there or to um, invest in businesses because it was redlined. And I know having lived in Boston myself uh, quite a bit, uh, the uh, the lack of, of supermarkets in certain neighborhoods, it's like, what? How does that happen? How, how do you expect people to live there? And it's just, it's not well thought out. And maybe it is well thought out because I suppose it's racial capitalism after all. And it doesn't really have a heart. And certainly policy development is generally driven by numbers, by cold, hard data. Feelings don't have anything to do with it. Feelings are real, and they are of value, in my opinion. You in, your interview of subjects revealed common emotions uh, upon returning to their old neighborhoods after long absences. What were they, and what, 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 what weight, if any, should those feelings be given in determining future policy? Talk about that for a while. Well, that's a good a good way to think about it. You know, the neighborhood that I grew up in, I'm had is is slowly experiencing gentrification. And um, you know, when I my brother came home, he's not not from prison, but just from Seattle where he lives. And we're walking down the street, and he's looking at the houses, the row houses that have been turned into condos, and the new like cider brewery that's on the street, and and the new businesses. And he's kind of just feeling like, wow, like. Um, you know, the neighborhood that I grew up in has changed so much. I don't, I don't really even feel like I, be, I still belong here. And I, and I, and a lot of people express that sentiment. Like, it, you know, it looks different. It doesn't feel like I belong. And the new people are not welcoming. You know, they act like I don't belong here when, you know, I'm the one that's lived here all this time. So a, a lot of things are going on. But you know, one thing that I think about a lot is on the corner nearby um, where I grew up, there's a nice tavern there. You know, they have Sauvignon Blanc, they have mussels, they have um, chicken sandwiches. Like, it's a nice little neighborhood spot. And I often think about, well, why why weren't they here in the 1990s? Like, in the 1990s, I, I lived in that neighborhood. I, I worked downtown. I certainly could afford a glass of wine. And, and not just me as a young adult in that time period, but the block that I live on, it was nearly all black. And on that block, we also had the head of um, cardio, cardiovascular surgery at Howard. We had an oral oh, wow. surgeon. We had a dentist, right? So we had plenty of people in that neighborhood who could certainly afford to go out to eat and who did definitely go out to eat. They just didn't go out to eat in the neighborhood because there literally was nothing, no sit-down restaurants in the neighborhood. So there's, so it makes you feel like, okay, so why, you know, why did investors wait for white people to move into this neighborhood for them to create things that, you know, that, that any person of means might want. So there's also that feeling of like this neighborhood that I lived in all this time when it was, when it was nearly all black, it didn't get the attention that it's getting today. It didn't, it didn't get the private investment. It didn't get the nicer schools. It didn't get the brand new playgrounds. Like why, why does my own city treat me like that? Mm. Wow. Yes, really. I mean, I, I, it's it's just it's frustrating and you know I've had I've talked to people who say oh no we don't have systemic racism you know we had a black president well there mm -hmm. you go that does it uh, yeah right yeah. Uh, but this it's so I I I can't help but see that what you're talking about here why the, all these things added up together here uh, it's systemic racism it just plain is mm -hmm. there's no other excuse for it and 
I'm curious, why do you believe understanding what happens before gentrification, regardless of where it is, is important? It's Why is it important to understand what happens before gentrification? Okay, so there's a number of reasons, but let's start with um, a story. So I'm, I went to a restaurant on 14th Street in Washington, D.C., near 14th and U, and I asked the waiter, I said, how long have you been open? And he said, oh, oh, we were one of the first. We opened in 2007. And I was like, wait. So, just, so his idea is basically that 14th Street, which, 14th and U, which is Black Broadway, right, which is the heart of African-American culture in D.C., you know, where Duke Ellington is from, like that, like that, that was nothing, that there was nothing there. So I think so. part of this, part oh, of the gentrifier mindset can just be that, like, it's very colonizer, right? Like, there was nothing here, and then we came and we built this restaurant. It's like, no, actually, there were many things here, right? So, um, like I said before, we didn't have as many nice things, but we had, there was a community. Um, there were carryout restaurants that we went to. There were music conservatories. There were some things in the neighborhood, and most importantly, there were people. There were communities. So just reminding people that gentrification is not like um, some salvation we all needed, right? We yeah. had a lot of things <laughs> of value in the neighborhood that um, that gentrification has erased. So sort of just kind of forgetting that. And the other big piece of it, though, is that there was also a lot of trauma, right? So that era of um, mass incarceration and really high rates of murder and violence was actually very traumatic for a lot of people. And it I does feel like the city is just, moving along, like, let's just put a coffee shop there, put a yoga studio here, and let's forget about, you know, what happened then. And a lot of people are still haven't really processed this. You know, most people that I grew up with in D.C. have relatives that were incarcerated, have friends that were murdered. And, you know, and, and, and a lot of people, a lot of my um, neighborhood friends, when they read this book, they say, you know, it's, um, they hadn't thought about it. They forgot, you know, they, they hadn't thought it's very emotional for them, but we, we, we need to collectively process what happened. And we also need to do that so that we don't do that again. Well, one thing I've learned from history is that we never learn from history. We just don't. We just don't. Right. <laughs> <laughs> one can dream. <laughs> and, and, you know, I have not given up on aspirations. We, we have to be aspirational. Maybe I'm totally naive. But yeah, it is what it is. And uh, for, if, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest is Tanya Golash-Boza, uh, who is executive director of the University of California, Washington, professor of sociology at the University of California. And her new book is put out by the University of California Press. It's called Before Gentrification, the Creation of D.C.'s Racial Wealth Gap. And... You know, it's so much easier for large, you know, white-dominated society. Let's face it, to you know, uh, slum clearance, as they say. Just you know, just arrest people. Just get them. Don't we don't want to see it. We don't want to see it. Just make the problem go away. I don't want to look at it. And that doesn't the the what's going on in terms of uh, you know urban renewal. And, and this progress and gentrification is people get pushed out of their neighborhoods. And the neighborhoods get economically uh, decimated. So first question, where do people go? These people that are pushed out, where do they go? And in a larger sense, 
aside from the damage and pain that's caused to the people who, who used to call these neighborhoods their home and feel, you know, a part of a community, what's, what's the overall price that, you know, society in general pays for this kind of uh, 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 dynamic? Yeah, I mean, so let's start with the overall price. I, I mean, when when you have a community, right, when you have people that feel like they can count on their neighbors, when people feel like they can, their children can walk to the neighborhood school, when we're all kind of invested in this community that we right. live in and we can trust people, um, that's that's good for everyone. It's good for people that live in the community and it's good for the people in the next community over because they're not leaving that community to go bother them, right? They're staying, <laughs> they're staying right there in their community, um, living their living their best life. So on the one hand, you know, having strong communities is important um, and for, for the people in the community, and then it's important um, beyond that. And as to where people go, um, and they basically go to places that have not yet gentrified. Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, yeah. So in, in D.C., there are still, everyone says, you know, the whole city has gentrified. That's not true because, first of all, the upper middle class white neighborhoods have certainly not gentrified because the gentry's already there, has been there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then there are also neighborhoods that, are, that continue to be very disinvested and have high levels of violence and, and they have low housing prices, but also dilapidated buildings. And so a lot of people from um, neighborhoods that are gentrifying are kind of pushed out to these other neighborhoods that are not as, um, that don't have as many amenities as the neighborhoods that are being gentrified. And as a, what I call myself, a recovering politician, uh, what are there, you know, there's so many issues these days. I mean, the Republicans, all they can talk about is China, China, China. They obviously did some sort of Mm -hmm. polling. But what about... Are politicians talking about this? You know, not just black politicians, but white politicians. Do they recognize that by decimating working class neighborhoods, it ain't good for the economy? Are they starting to recognize that? And do you see any action on it? And and I guess, uh, you know, the federal government, uh, the capital is is where the action could be. What what, what do you hear? Yeah, we we see some conversations about it, but I think a lot of Cities just don't really reckon with the reality. Mm. So um, this is this is happening in D.C., but all across the country. Oh yeah, you have cities where the the price of housing is just going up year after year. So what happens is, um, I mean, cities need workers. Yes, right? so yes. We need people to work in the Walgreens. You know, they don't need as many as they used to because now they have all the self checkouts. Uh, but no. they still need bus drivers. They still need construction workers. They need you know maintenance people, custodians. So there's there's all these workers that the city needs to function we don't pay these workers enough so they cannot afford these really high expensive um buildings so what the workers are doing for now is a lot of them are living um you know in in, with other people or or they might be living in their parents home or their Mm. relatives home Mm. or they might be moving out right just to to the suburbs but there's a limit to how far you're going to be willing to drive for a job that pays 20 dollars an hour because eventually you realize wait like why am i driving Right. Two hours right. to work at Walgreens when there's a Walgreens right here, you know, that I could work at. So I think um, cities are just not reckoning with the reality that workers need, I mean, cities need workers and yes. workers need housing. So I, yes. I think that cities for an hour are kind of waiting it out and, and relying on a lot of workers to kind of figure out their way. Um, and, and But that's not, and, and that's not durable. And one thing that I just, I found out that was just blew my mind, but a lot of the Uber drivers in cities that come in on the weekends to help with nightlife, you know, cart people around to different nightclubs, uh-huh. most of them don't live in that city. They literally come in on Friday afternoon, 
sleep in their car and then go back home. And that's just not sustainable. You know, people, young people might do that for a little while, but they're not going to, you know, once they have a family, they're not going to keep doing that anymore. And there are places where they, uh, it, it, uh, it, where they have workforce housing, where where po- political mm-hmm. people, government leaders know that workforce housing. Yeah, it's important. We need a workforce. We need people, in you know, to to do these jobs. Uh, it's really important, and they generally work. And you know, I don't. Know, maybe it's a surprise to some people, but yes, they oftentimes work, especially that are being done now in the twenty first century, and. You did some bike riding around D.C. Yeah. For, for your research, and, and you learned that the city has funded the building of some beautiful schools and libraries mm-hmm. all over D.C. in both uh, poor and more affluent neighborhoods. Could this be a sign that D.C. is turning a corner? <laughs> what are your thoughts? Um, I think that's a sign of um, somebody being in the right place. and, and make, I, I think that is one of the beauties. D.C. does have... Um, a strong black political class and not that it, of course white people yes. are able to see that black people also deserve beautiful spaces, but it's easier sometimes for a black politician to see that. So I think what mm-hmm. happened is just, you had the right people in the right place. We have um, a tremendous cadre of, 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 of amazing black architects in the city. Yeah. We have black people that work in most of the city government offices. I think it was just a, a combination of forces where someone had the vision to create these um, beautiful spaces and then, and then it happens. So I think that's, uh, that is a, one of the bright spots that we see is that just driving across these or, or riding a bike around D.C. and coming into um, a neighborhood that's low income and um, there's not a lot there. And then you turn around and there's this beautiful <laughs> feet, <laughs> feet of architecture sitting there, you know, and it's a public library. So that, is, that does give some hope that the city uh, sometimes makes good decisions and makes good public investments in neighborhoods that are low income and majority black. And and the money for that, does that come from the federal government? I mean, I don't know what the, what kind of taxes are, are paid by the people who live there. Yeah, D.C., most of D.C.'s money comes from um, property tax and income tax revenue, but we do receive, um, what's, I think it's called, there's a federal payment that comes along every year. Oh, so there's, right. there's some of the money from the city comes from the federal government. And part of it is because... Um, the federal government puts restrictions on the city's revenue, so D.C. is, like, not allowed to have a commuter tax. And we're also not a, – 43% of the land in D.C. is not taxed because nonprofits and uh, federal government buildings can't be taxed. Oh, so sure. 43% of the land is not taxed. So. Wow. Yeah, and uh, I, I, I would think, uh, you know, the old uh, taxation without representation that, you know, maybe <laughs> it ought to be the 51st state. Although I can think of other 51st states as well, like New York City separating from the rest of that huge state. Anyway, I wonder, how are, are people getting, getting this important message as to, as to what the reality is here? How do you have, what kind of degree of, dare I say, optimism do you have for the future? I, I derive optimism from, um, from the people from D.C. People from D.C. are resilient. We have a beautiful culture. And um, and people are still holding on to um, that imagination that D.C. could continue to be a city for the people that values community. There are a couple of bright spots. There's um, there's a woman, her name is Angel Gregorio, and she opened up this um, beautiful shopping mall um, that's all black-owned businesses. And she has and, and she has these community events every weekend. She has a farmer's market. And, and this is in a, a low-income neighborhood. So I think there are... Yeah. Some visions of the future, there are some people that are um, figuring out a way to sort of 
turn this gentrification around and create spaces that also benefit um, low-income people and people of color. Nice. That's so good to hear. I always like to end on a good on a good note, a good positive note. Uh, I thank you for listening today, dear listener. And uh, our guest has been Tanya Golash Bozar, whose new book from University of California Press is "Before Gentrification: The Creation of DC's Racial Wealth Gap." Thank you so much for being with us today, Tanya. Thank you, Bert. It was great to chat. Some of you may remember Eddie Murphy from Saturday Night Live. This was from 2019. It's about the subject we were just talking about. Hi, boys and girls. It's your old pal, Mr. Robinson. So much has changed since we last spent some time together. My neighborhood has gone through so much. It's gone through something called gentrification. (laughs) Can you say gentrification, boys and girls? It's like a magic trick. White people pay a lot of money, and then poof, all the black people are gone. But where do they go, boys and girls? If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. And if you find the information valuable, your friends probably do too. Please ask them to also subscribe. It's on Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much.